welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Jim Tisdale. I'm a professor in the College of Pharmacy at Purdue University and an adjunct professor in the School of Medicine at Indiana University. I also serve as one of the scientific editors for Pharmacotherapy. Today we are talking with doctors Paul Dobesh and Toby Trujillo about their paper entitled Coagulopathy, Venous Thromboembolism, and Anticoagulation in Patients with COVID-19. Dr. Dobesh is professor in the College of Pharmacy at the University of Nebraska, and Dr. Trujillo is associate professor at the Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Colorado. Welcome to the podcast, Drs. Dobesh and Trujillo. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Dr. Trujillo, the first case of SARS-CoV-2 was reported in Wuhan, China in December 2019, and the first case was reported in the U.S. in January 2020. When did we learn that thrombosis and venous thromboembolism were components of coronavirus disease, or COVID-19? Yeah, so uh, the first published report that came out focusing really on the risk of thromboembolic events, really venous thromboembolism and COVID-19, was in the middle of March, uh, March 16, 2020, actually. And it was a report out of China by Tang et al. And it really was the first, it was an observational analysis, but it was really the first report in the literature in a relatively larger number of patients regarding overall the the risk of venous thromboembolism, uh, its association with the hyperinflammatory state, uh, which Dr. Dobish will talk more about, and also the impact of anticoagulation uh, in that observational analysis. Um, by the time Dr. Dobish and I had started talking about working on this paper together, uh, probably by late April, early May, uh, there were easily over hundreds of reports uh, just focusing on the risk of thromboembolic events uh, in patients with COVID-19. Dr. Dobesh, what is the pathophysiology of thrombogenesis associated with COVID-19, and does cytokine storm play a role? Yeah, so as you can imagine, the pathophysiology of thrombosis in these patients is fairly complex. Um, and some of it we've seen before, and some of it we haven't. So, you know, as you may or may not know, uh, the, you know, the, the coronavirus is actually, it's uh, got kind of these S-spike proteins, which give it a corona, kind of a crown shape to it. That's where you get the name. And it's got two subunits, S1 and S2. And so what happens is that those subunits, they bind, the way they bind to a cell is through the ACE2 enzyme. All right. And so, you know, the purpose of the ACE2 enzyme uh, with you is basically what it does is it converts angiotensin 2 and breaks it down into a bunch of byproducts, uh, you know, angiotensin 1 through 7. And those are numerical 1 through 7, not Roman numerals like we're used to with angiotensin 1 and angiotensin 2. So once that happens, it downregulates the ACE2 receptor, which means now there's a buildup of angiotensin 2. And I'll come back to the importance of that in a second. But once the cell's infected, right, it basically can uh, leads to a reduction in interferon alpha and beta. That's kind of our first line defense. So now the virus can get in and replicate very quickly. Um, and then basically what will happen then is there's recruitment of monocytes, macrophages, neutrophils, pro-inflammatory cytokines uh, like interleukin-6 and tumor necrosis factor. This is what's called the cytokine storm. Uh, but none of this is new, right? We get cytokine storm in other types of infections as well. I mean, there's actually situations that, you know, there's sepsis-induced coagulopathy. There's DIC, right? Uh, and these are both usually considered consumption coagulopathies, where basically it uses up all the fibrinogen, they go into the, into the and uh, you get high D-dimer levels and things like that. And then what happens in thrombosis with this is, you know, there's tissue damage, usually in the lungs, 
And then there's activation of the extrinsic clotting cascade by stimulation of uh, tissue factor. Uh, neutrophils are actually able to activate factor 12. And, you know, platelets are also recruited to this area of injury. So that's really what leads to the, to the, the thrombotic condition. But what makes COVID-19 induced thrombosis different has to do, go back to its interaction with the angiotensin uh, 2 receptor. So like I said, once the, the virus binds to this receptor, it downregulates, you know, and then we get a lot of angiotensin 2. So you might say, well, who cares? Well, what happens with increases in angiotensin 2 is responsible for large production of what's called PI-1. PI-1 is plasminogen activator inhibitor, right? So when you usually have a cytokine storm with other types of infections and you get clots, many of the times these, these fiber depositions, uh, deposits, excuse me, are broken down by, you know, tissue plasminogen activator, urokinase plasminogen activator. And so that's the natural check and balance. But what we know is that since angiotensin II causes this huge increase in plasminogen activator inhibitor, it binds to and inhibits this natural defense mechanism. So it's not there. So the thrombosis goes unchecked. In fact, many are referring to this now as, because it's, it's not a consumption coagulopathy. These patients actually have high fibrinogen levels and high D-dimer levels as well. Um, and so people have actually termed this possibly like COVID coagulopathy or pneumonia coagulopathy, because it is, it is a different mechanism in, the, in, in this setting. Dr. Trujillo, what is the incidence of venous thromboembolism in patients with COVID-19? Um, that's a great question. Early on, the reports in the literature uh, not only uh, talked about the association or the risk of venous thromboembolism in patients with COVID-19, but it was clear that the, the level of risk um, was higher than what might be normally anticipated uh, for patients who were admitted to the hospital, say, with other, say, viral pneumonias or even other infectious diseases. Uh, whether that's a patient who is either uh, on the floor or in the intensive care unit. So if you look at the literature, as I mentioned before, there are lots of reports in this particular area. And the rates of either DVT or PE or VTE in general are, are a little bit, um, there's, there's a little bit of a range. But uh, I'm going to quote specifically a meta-analysis published in Thrombosis uh, Research that looked at uh, about 3,500 patients across 30 studies. And in that, in that sort of analysis of all of those patients, uh, the rate of uh, VTE was 24% in ICU patients and about 9% in floor patients. Now, one other caveat that I'd like to throw in is that in studies that have done any type of prospective screening, the rates are much higher. So, for instance, in another report I'm just looking at right now, uh, in those studies that looked at, they were prospectively screening patients, not just looking at clinical events, uh, the rates are much higher, up to 40 to 50%. Um, and that may be important uh, because there has been some discussion about whether or not uh, the rates of thrombosis, especially in the pulmonary circulation, contribute to disease, uh, to, to the worsening of uh, either ARDS and the demise of patients uh, when they get super sick. Well, those incidences are much higher than I would have guessed. Uh, Dr. Dobesh, are there risk factors for COVID-19-associated venous thromboembolism? Yeah, so there are some unique risk factors. These patients have very high D-dimer levels. Um, they have low lymphocyte counts, things like that. I think part of the thing is that that COVID-19 patients as well just have 
um, a lot of the traditional risk factors, right? I mean, most of the patients, especially if hospitalized, are over the age of 40, right? Risk factor. They've got an infection like pneumonia. That's a risk factor. They end up with respiratory insufficiency, respiratory failure. That's a risk factor. They clearly have immobility. That's a risk factor. You got ICU patients, right? They have even higher D-dimer levels. They have sedation. They're on vasopressors. They end up with central venous catheters. And so, you know, it, these patients just have so many of the traditional risk factors and you work in these high D-dimer levels that have been shown uh, have been shown to kind of correlate to higher risk of development of VTE. It's just, uh, you know, they're just at significant risk. Dr. Trujillo, how can clinicians determine whether a patient presenting to the hospital with COVID-19 should undergo pharmacologic prophylaxis for venous thromboembolism? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, <clears throat> and it's a relatively straightforward answer. Uh, unlike other most other medically ill patient populations, where uh, guidelines would recommend doing a sort of a risk stratified approach using a, uh, either a Padua score or an improved score, uh, for these patients because they are relatively uniformly high risk for VTE. Uh, and we talked about some of those rates uh, in the previous question that I answered, uh, those being much higher than what you would normally expect. Uh, really, all patients who are admitted to the hospital, regardless of whether they're admitted to the floor or transfer into the ICU, should receive pharmacologic prophylaxis for VTE. So there's really, uh, it's really just hospital admission. And once they're there, they should get prophylaxis. Dr. Dobesh, is there a role for pharmacologic prophylaxis for venous thromboembolism in patients with COVID-19 who are not hospitalized? Yeah, that's a great question because we typically don't think about that. Uh, you know, if you're not in the hospital, you're not at risk. But, you know, by this time, most of us have, you know, know people who have had COVID-19. And, and, you know, from my experiences with them, as well as what's in the literature, right, um, these patients get a, a significant malaise, right? And they don't, they don't move around a lot. So they have, even though they're at home, their mobility is typically pretty restricted, uh, many of those risk factors, just because they're in the hospital, such as, you know, maybe they ha- they're going to have the immobility, they may be obese, they do still have acute infection, um, you know, those, those risk factors are still there. So while I think most patients who get COVID-19 are not going to need prophylaxis at home, I think, you know, those, those risk assessment tools that, uh, that Dr. Trujillo mentioned, uh, which we actually put in the paper, you know, those should probably be applied to the patients who aren't hospitalized. Like, like Toby said, you know, you're hospitalized, there's no need for an assessment, you're at high risk. But if you're at home, maybe looking, I think looking at those risk assessment tools and then deciding maybe the patient should be prophylaxed at home because they might have significant risk factors. Uh, and there are actually a number of organizations that also support that, uh, that, that, that approach. So, Dr. Dobesh, if it is determined that a patient hospitalized with COVID-19 requires prophylaxis of venous thromboembolism, which it sounds like it's the vast majority of patients, is there a preferred pharmacologic approach to prophylaxis? Yeah, I think there is. Um, you know, you might see some variants of this a little bit in the literature. Um, so to start out with, DOACs really don't play a role just because these patients might need a, a significant number of procedures and hold times for that are going to be um, uh, you know, longer. So, you know, hot in the hospitalized patients, not going to be something we're going to use for prophylaxis. You know, then that leaves us typically with uh, low molecular heparin, maybe fondaparinox or unfractionated heparin. And so, you know, if you're using unfractionated heparin, you know, you're looking at three times a day injections. Twice daily is not going to cut it here. And so, you know, you have to think about, well, you know, that would probably work. 
Um, you know, you're talking about more healthcare, you know, the healthcare practitioners are going to be more exposed, more patient contact that way. You're going to use personalized protective equipment much more, up much more in your institution where, you know, a low molecular heparin injections, you know, going to be one, typically once, maybe twice a day, but you're going to lower that. The other thing that's important too, is we know that low molecular heparins cause less heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And that could be, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia could be very hard to diagnose in a patient with COVID because patients with COVID, while they may have low, you know, kind of hovering platelet counts, they don't get dramatically low until maybe several days into the infection and then they may drop. Well, guess what? If you're on an unfractionated heparin and your platelet count drops after several days, do you have HIT or is this part of the progression of the COVID? And figuring that out is probably not something we're going to be able to do in a timely manner. Uh, so low molecular weight heparins, I think, make a or a logical choice for prophylaxis for the vast majority of patients.